thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And I'm grateful that you're with me today. And I want to continue with what I teased about in last at the end of last week's program, the quote from Thomas Jefferson in a letter to Judge Tyler that said, well, the common law rights of men had been the grounds of the revolution, but it was a narrow conception of things by men who felt their rights, but had not really considered their foundations. And I use that to say there was a great tension taking place in our nation in its early formation between the common law, as I've described it using Adam McLeod and William Blackstone, and Enlightenment thinking that became popularized through Thomas Hobbes, Pufendorf, John Locke, and many Christians love John Locke, and he was very good about the concept of separation of powers. But John Locke essentially created a, a false version of the formation of government as through contract, which led to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his absolutism of the state. And, and so um, we need to be careful for people to start citing John Locke for anything other than perhaps the separation of powers. But there was this great tension taking place between the thoughts of the Enlightenment and the thoughts of the common law developed over the centuries, especially through the Puritan Revolution and the time of a gentleman you may not have heard of called Matthew Hale. Matthew Hale uh, was said by many to be the person who sort of rescued the common law and kept it alive uh, when the kings were trying to dominate. And one of the things that Hale said, and I think it is is beautiful, and it is to me a rebuke to our modern society. It is a rebuke to those who say, as was said by some at the founding of our country, common law came from the dark ages. Literally, they said that. And of course, we talked about that last week, right? That when you bring up common law, people are saying, you're going to take us back to the dark ages. And if you don't know how to respond to that, go back and listen to last week's commentary. But that's what they were saying even around the early founding of our country, that we needed to go with the new ideas of Essentially, Jeremy Bentham and the French Revolution and a civil code where men sat down and thought of the law and wrote it all down. And all law was posited by men and not based on anything outside their own excogitative genius and what they could figure out. Right. So so Matthew Hale said this. It is reason for me to prefer a law by which a kingdom hath been happily governed four and five hundred years, than to adventure the happiness and peace of a kingdom upon some new theory of my own, though I am better acquainted with the reasonableness of my own theory than with that law. Again, uh, 
I have reason to assure myself that long experience makes more discoveries touching the conveniences or inconveniences of laws than is possible for the wisest counsel of men at first to foresee. So, see, when we throw away our history, when we throw away the things we've learned from the past and distilled down to, we have to fill our law with volumes of code books. I don't know if I said this last week or in last week's commentary, but I've actually held in one hand the code of the state of Tennessee as it existed in 1858. And now it's over 70 volumes of books containing hundreds of pages each. You see what's happened? Now, I, I want to comment here a little bit on what was taking place in the early part of our country, that by the time we're drafting constitutions, you see, we're, we're struggling with um, this tension between Enlightenment thinking and civil codes ushered in in France and our common law heritage. The proponent of our common law heritage was the person I referenced last week, Joseph Story. His protagonist was uh, Thomas Jefferson. Adams was also of a mind more like Joseph Story. But Jefferson, although he would make the statement that how can a nation think its liberty secure unless they're they remember that its firm foundation is is God, right? And I quake to think of a nation who forgets this. He's still being tugged at by this enlightenment thinking that we can sit down and craft a code of our own, forgetting that whatever it is that he thinks he knows he can write down has come from long experience. You see the arrogance of us that we we stand out on the branch and think we no longer need the tree. When, when everything we know standing out of the branch has come from the tree of long history and experience, even wars, fighting for what was right and distilling those things down into things like William Blackstone wrote in his commentaries, that Joseph Story wrote in his commentaries. Joseph Story to be honest, he won the battle with Thomas Jefferson in the early part of our nation's history. And so in his commentaries on the Constitution, the first comprehensive commentary on the Constitution written by an American in 1833, he wrote this, quote, the common law is our birthright and inheritance. <laughs> And basically, we've sold it for the pot of porridge of Jeremy Bentham and a civil code and positive law, divorced from the biblical conception of law that is at common law. He continued to write, The whole structure of our present jurisprudence stands upon the original foundations of the common law. Now, he does say present jurisprudence, but this is in 1833, after the adoption of the Constitution. Now think about what he's saying. Our whole legal structure 
stands upon the common law. And if we don't understand common law, then we do not understand our legal structure and we don't understand our Constitution, which is why it has been so perverted by our jurists. And we've allowed it to be done because we also don't know our own history. In fact, Charles Warren, in his book, The Making of the Constitution, recalled the words written by George Mason of Virginia regarding the first Bill of Rights. Quote, no free government or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people but by frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. And then Warren continued, our political system will break down only when and where the people for whom and by whom it is intended to be carried on shall fail to receive a sound instruction in its principles and in its historical development, illustrating its application to and under changing conditions. Our country, said Edmund Burke, and now Warren is quoting him, is not a thing of mere physical locality. It consists in great measure in the ancient order into which we are born. And see, we've forgotten that. And I hate to say, our pastors have forgotten that. The pastors who were able to lead the charge, the black robe regiment, during the war for independence could no more lead in our country politically and governmentally than a man in the moon. And I don't think there's a man in the moon because they don't know these things either. And I know they don't know these things because I talk to them about them and they shake their head or they look at me like I've got seven eyes or they say, oh, my goodness. So the people we Christians depend on to provide leadership so that we don't act lawlessly are with respect to our form of government lawless. Now, let me just kind of comment here because that sounds kind of harsh. I was just reading this morning in Titus, this is uh, chapter 2, verse 14, to redeem us from every lawless deed. Now, because we are mired in atomistic, individualistic, personal piety, we don't see that we can engage in law and in politics and in government in lawless ways. You see, when we have limited the law of God to the personal life of sanctification, we fail to see that the law of God has established norms for everything in his creation. Nothing is unlawed. Nothing is unnormed by the law of God. There's a way education is supposed to work, and it won't work unless those norms, those Creational norms about learning and education are understood and positivized correctly. Not positivized as in made up out of our own heads, but the wisdom of them, the, the knowledge of them, the understanding of them are then applied to the current situation and circumstances, see? But we've forgotten all of that law. And even to talk about that law will get you accused by some people of being a theonomist, when in reality, it's just 
how Christians should think because God created all things and he did not leave anything to operate according to its own law independent of him. That's at best polytheism practiced by many Christians, many ministers. Okay. So what began to happen in the early part of our country is that legislative bodies began to go after the judiciary. They began to go after the judiciary because the thought was common law is undemocratic because we don't get to make the law for ourselves. It was even considered an ex post facto law because you didn't know you shouldn't have slugged your neighbor in the face because he called you a cotton-headed ninny-muggins. Uh, and, and the judge told you in court, well, you're not supposed to slug people. See, that was an ex post facto law. The only reason it's an ex post facto law would be because we didn't have the wisdom and the judgment and the knowledge of biblical morality to know I shouldn't slug my neighbor just because he called me a name. Right? That's how messed up some of the stuff was going on in our own country. Now, this was fascinating to me to find out there was a book written by the a legislative librarian at the state of Tennessee, and I got it. I'm kind of a nerd, and I like to read about this history of law in the state of Tennessee. And there were fights over a codification of statutes enacted by our legislature in Tennessee in the early 1800s. We became a state at the end of the 1790s. And the legislature would pass some statutes, right? But they were just kind of here and there. But it was hard to find them. And some judges in other states, when called upon to try to figure out what the Tennessee law was, said, well, it's hard for us to know. Y'all haven't codified and put all of your law in one place, okay? It wasn't until 1858 that the legislature actually codified all the statutes they had enacted and created an index where you could find the statutes. And there was still controversy about this idea of codification and turning our law into just strictly statutes. One newspaper editorial in 1859 here in Tennessee, the year after the codification, this body, speaking of the legislature, has now been in session for two weeks. We fear, from the indications, that the session will be protracted beyond the period for which the people had reasonable ground to expect. The session of the last legislature was unusually long and was attended with unusual expense. That was the session where they fought over the code and decided to codify it and all that. There are probably imperfections in the code, some of which the public interest may demand shall be remedied. But it is equally probable, if the present legislature should make it perfect in their estimation, the next would find fully as many fault in it as amended as are now apparent. The tendency of modern times is to too much legislation. The people demand but little modification to our general laws and will be satisfied with as little legislation as possible. And now our politicians try to dream up as many laws as possible 
because otherwise there is no law, right? We're full Benthamites. We wouldn't know how to get married if the state didn't issue us a marriage license and tell us where to go get it and how to get it filled out and where to return it. You see how positivized we've become? See how much we think we know what law is and we really don't? So in this context, we need to appreciate that what Joseph's story was doing was, in the words of Joseph McClellan, in his book, Joseph's Story in the American Constitution, said that story, in his opinions and writings, counteracted the American revolutionary practice of hypothesizing civil liberties upon a contractual natural rights basis, that's John Locke and Jeremy Bentham, and at the same time shifted the theoretical basis of positive law from natural rights to natural law and to history. We owe a great debt of gratitude to Joseph Story at this time in our history, because otherwise I could not have read to you a statement that would have been true, such as I read earlier, that the foundation of our whole legal structure is the common law. We couldn't say that. We would have lost to the Thomas Jefferson, and we would have nothing now on which to argue that marriage is not created by the licensure of the state, that the state doesn't decide whether you can remove a young boy's healthy scrotum or a young girl's healthy breast buds. We would have no law to argue that you can't have public drag queen shows in public parks. If Joseph's story had not prevailed in the early years of our country and established these kinds of precedents that I'm trying to use and trying to drag my friends and colleagues into using to get out of this rut and cycle that we're now in of Benthamite, Holmesian, law comes from the mind of man alone system that we're in. So Russell Kirk, an American scholar, summed up Story's import and influence for America this way. In the first half of the 19th century, when America was rawer, the importance of European ideas was correspondingly greater. Of course, by European ideas, he's talking about Bentham and civil codes and all law being positive law. They filtered into the United States, often against the protest of an arrogant American public. See, that's what I'm talking about. We're all democratic. History and common law is the dark ages. We need to be able to vote to make all of our laws. We don't need some judge over here deciding what our law is. And the Americans who tempered democratic overconfidence with old world prudence ought to receive in our generation the thanks denied in their own time. See, people were vicious against the Joseph stories of the world because they were out of date and immodern and not 
progressive. Unfortunately, Story did see where we were heading and where we've now arrived, that everything is positive law. Except for, as I said, that history's still there. If we will use it, it has not been revoked. It has not been repealed. There's been no constitutional amendment saying that Story was wrong. We won't use it, but it's there if we will. But Story despaired a little bit. Again, James McClellan, in his book about Story, writes the following. By the 1840s, Judge Story had given up all hope that men of understanding and any goodwill could any longer, quote, make a stout and strong resistance to the inroads of a low and mischievous democracy. For my own part, I think that we have fully tried the experiment of a representative republic and that it is a failure on our part. The vital principles of the Constitution are uprooted and disregarded in the blind fury of party spirit. I look now to the dissolution of the Union as inevitable and at no very distant period. Of course, we had a civil war 20-something years later. And in that war, some of the principles of dual sovereigns, okay, dual government jurisdictions with limited authority, uh, over the other, the states couldn't take on the authority that was given to the federal government. The federal government was confined within its authority and could not take over the states. You see, there was, in a sense, a dissolution. But the thing I want to leave you with in closing today is this statement by Ernest Trolsch. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Trolsch wrote this. The French Revolution marks a break with the church and the whole of the past. And indeed, that's the case. The French Revolution was a break from the centuries-long conversation, to be honest, from Plato and Aristotle to Cicero to Jerusalem to Golgotha to to London, to Philadelphia, of how do you have a good life in a cosmos ordered by God and substituted for that conversation was the mantra of the French Revolution, no God, no master. And so indeed, there was a break with the whole of history with the French Revolution. What's interesting to me is Abraham Kuyper in 1898, 50 years after story is despairing and seeing the dissolution inevitable, said to the seminarians at Princeton University, quote, although on the American continent in a younger world, a relatively healthier tone of life prevails than in sensate Europe. Yet this will not for a moment mislead the thinking mind. To be honest, we didn't have too many thinking minds at Princeton, which was the leading seminary of thinking minds. And he continued, it is impossible for you to shut yourselves off hermetically from the old world, that's the continent, from what was taking place in France. He talked about it over and over in his lectures to those students. 
as if you form no humanity apart, but are a member of the great body of the race. And the poison, he's talking here specifically about the poison of the French Revolution. Having once entered the system at a single joint, in due time must necessarily pervade the whole organism. In other words, it's coming to America's shores. And indeed, had he not been Dutch and maybe known a little bit more about our country, he would have realized we had been fighting this struggle from the very beginning between Joseph Story and Thomas Jefferson, between Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And to be honest, we were losing to the positive law, French Revolution form of the cosmos. And so Kuiper, in that same final lecture, said this, that you must go back to the living root of the Calvinist plant, whose doctrines of justification by faith spread out into every area of society and influenced them all, art, science, education, government. He said, you need to go back to that living root to clean and to water it, and so to cause it to bud and to blossom once more. Now, fully in accordance with our actual life in these modern times and the demands of the times to come. In other words, we have to recover the theology that we've lost that produced all the things we have here in the United States. But not to go back to the dark ages, but to apply it to the demands of our time. And you see, that's the problem conservatives face. How do you take principles, unyielding, we would say as Christians, creational principles, and yet adapt them to the times? And common law allows you to do that. But if all law comes out of the mind of man, you have nothing to appeal to but man himself. And that's a problem. And we're going to start looking at that next week in a wonderful law review article written by a former Yale law professor, Arthur Leff, titled Unspeakable Ethics, Unnatural Law. And I think you're going to find my analysis of that article very, very fascinating. I used to have my students read it, and it's time to pull it out and put it on a podcast. And I hope you'll join me next week as we begin to look at unspeakable ethics, unnatural law. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.